Next, is it true that Celium Husk has a lot of dangerous metals? This is one of the reasons why it's really important to be selective where you get your information from because Celium Husk has been shown to reduce cholesterol, improve blood sugar control, improve constipation and diarrhea, and there's many benefits of consuming Celium Husk. But if you come across some fear-mongering information of someone telling you that Celium Husk has metals in it, then you may avoid this perfectly healthy food that could offer you health benefits because you listened to someone who you shouldn't have been listening to. Welcome to the Nutrition Science Podcast, where we help you cut through the noise and make informed science-based decisions about nutrition and your health. How's it going, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Nutrition Science Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Adrian Chavez, and in this episode, we are going to be doing another Q&A episode. So, I got a lot of questions in my inbox through Instagram, and I really want to do my best to try to address them so that I can refer people to these episodes, and I think they're just going to be helpful as more of a rapid-fire, quick opinion episode. I've gotten some feedback from some of you who have said you enjoy these episodes. Um, if you are enjoying these Q&A episodes, please let me know. Uh, send me a message through Instagram. I would like to hear whether or not this is something that I should continue. I do think that it's helpful to give, like I said, just more of a rapid fire on a on these topics as opposed to going in depth on a topic. And sometimes uh, there's, there's things that just really don't deserve a whole episode. So in this episode, we are going to be discussing five additional topics today. The first thing we're going to talk about is whether or not there's a such thing as an anti-inflammatory diet. The second thing we're going to discuss is what do I think of Andrew Huberman? The third thing we're going to discuss is if you add protein to a meal. So someone asked if I was eating pasta, for example, if I added protein, wouldn't that have a negative effect on uh, fat loss because you're adding calories? So I want to address that question as well. Uh, the fourth one. Is psyllium husk safe to take? So I've talked about fiber, talked about psyllium husk. There's a lot of research showing benefits in terms of reducing cholesterol levels, improving uh, constipation and diarrhea with psyllium husk. And I got a question about whether or not it's safe to take. There are reports, I believe, online that are saying that, I guess, that it's high in metal. So we'll kind of discuss that a little bit. And then the last one is, do you need to soak chia seeds for them to have benefit? So let's go ahead and jump into the topics. Number one, is there a such thing as an anti-inflammatory diet? The reason I get asked this question is because I've often said that there's no such thing as inflammatory food. So I don't know if I've talked about this before on the podcast. I have an Instagram post that blew up that was one of my most popular posts that I ever made discussing why the term inflammatory foods is misleading because whether or not a food causes inflammation in a specific individual depends on a lot of factors specific to that individual. So for example, and we've talked about this before, but like I can consume dairy and have a completely different reaction to someone else. And for me, it may have an anti-inflammatory effect or it may have a positive effect on my health, whereas for someone else, it may actually be driving a bit of an inflammatory response. And, and the word inflammatory doesn't, doesn't really mean anything. Um, now, the way that I'm saying it, I'm thinking of it in a very specific way, but the way that people use it online uh, often doesn't mean anything. You'll hear people say, uh, these are inflammatory foods. This word 
provokes emotion. That's the reason that people use it so often. Inflammatory foods, when you hear those terms together, these are inflammatory foods or this food is inflammatory. That person doesn't know what they're talking about. So let's go ahead and get that out the way. If you're hearing, if you're following someone who, who labels foods as inflammatory, they don't know what they're talking about because every food, when it's metabolized and broken down for energy, creates a mild inflammatory response. And as I mentioned a second ago, whether or not a food creates a, a more pronounced um, inflammatory immune response depends on a lot of factors. And, and there's no foods that we can label individually as universally inflammatory. And so on the other side of this, this is something that I haven't discussed on my social media, is is there such thing as anti-inflammatory foods or an anti-inflammatory diet? And this is a little bit different. So in our bodies, when damage occurs, and, and often a lot, a lot of the damage is referred to as oxidative stress, and this is just a modification to the structure of molecules within our body that cause these molecules to become unstable and react with other molecules and interfere with their function. So we don't like this to happen. So oxidative stress is a something that occurs in our body that causes reactions that destabilize molecules and interfere with their function. We can reduce some of this oxidative stress with quote unquote, because oxidative stress, once that occurs, it can elicit an inflammatory response because the immune system is responding to the damage or the dysfunction that is occurring. And the immune system will start to recruit immune cells through these inflammatory cytokines and inflammatory signals. And what can happen with certain foods is they provide nutrients that stop that oxidative stress response and they stop these chemical reactions from occurring and destabilizing molecules. This is what antioxidants do. They will uh, donate an electron, for example, and stabilize a molecule or they will attach to a, a specific molecule and help stabilize that. And this is how they help to, quote unquote, reduce inflammation. So there are many foods that have been shown in studies to reduce markers of inflammation. For example, um, and I don't have these off the top of my head, but like there, I know there's multiple studies of, of different fruit extracts like berry extract, cherry extract, green tea extract, things like that, or other, other extracts that are rich in micronutrients that have been given to people in um, we have shown actual reductions in inflammatory markers, small reductions, it's not this massive thing, but actual reduction in markers of inflammation when people consume these foods. So from that perspective, you can technically say that these foods are quote unquote anti-inflammatory. Now, when it comes to a diet, the diet is going to be dependent on many other factors. So labeling a, a diet like as an anti-inflammatory diet, in my opinion, can be misleading for the same reasons that labeling foods as inflammatory can be misleading because a diet, depending on who eats it and how much you eat and other factors, you know, these are the factors that are going to drive whether or not that diet reduces inflammation within a specific person. Now, 
the premise behind anti-inflammatory diet is include a lot of foods that have been shown potentially to reduce inflammation levels systemically. And so you kind of pile all those together and put those into a dietary pattern. I'm all for that. Those foods, the foods that have been shown to reduce inflammation, these are just nutritious foods. So um, an, a quote-unquote anti-inflammatory diet would be one that includes lots of nutrient-rich foods. And, and I'm all for that. And so from that perspective, you know, the patterns that are often promoted as quote-unquote anti-inflammatory tend to, if they're based on science, tend to generally be, you know, good dietary patterns that are health-promoting. Now, when people say keto is anti-inflammatory or carnivore is anti-inflammatory or any of this, they are just making stuff up. There is no evidence for this. Now, one of the most quote-unquote anti-inflammatory things that we can do with our diet is reduce excess body fat. So pretty much anything can be quote-unquote anti-inflammatory if it leads to a reduction in body fat in someone who is holding excess body fat. So a, a diet of strictly McDonald's can, in most cases, would probably reduce uh, inflammatory markers if someone lost weight on that type of diet. So again, it, it just gets a little complicated in these labels while you know, they, they, they do have some validity to them. Uh, I, I don't like the way that they're used because they are technically not correct, but you know, whatever, if, if, if someone's promoting a diet that they call anti-inflammatory and it just includes a lot of foods that are nutrient rich that have been shown in, in studies to improve health, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to be mad about that, but you know, I do think that Sometimes these terms are thrown around um, because people, you know, anti-inflammatory sounds like a good thing. So using that and labeling your diet as anti-inflammatory oftentimes is a way to, is a marketing play. And that's the side of things that I don't really like is oftentimes people are using these buzzwords to get you to eat in a certain way that may not be best for you. Because as we discuss on this podcast, the best way to eat for you is the one that works for you. And that may not be the dietary pattern that someone's trying to label as anti-inflammatory and promote to you. All right. So that's the anti-inflammatory dietary pattern. I feel like I went on a little bit of a rant there, but hopefully that made sense and helped you to understand a little bit of my reservations on labeling uh, diets and foods in this way. Number two, what do I think of Andrew Huberman? So I've got this question a few times. Andrew Huberman runs a podcast called the Huberman Lab Podcast. If you haven't heard of it, it's one of the most popular podcasts in the world. Andrew Huberman is a neuroscientist out of Stanford. He's a professor there. I think he studies like eye health specifically, and he's gotten very popular with this podcast. He, he puts out a lot of information on a lot of topics largely unrelated to his area of expertise. So he'll talk about nutrition and sleep and testosterone and hormones. And he, he just, he talks about nearly everything. And again, his podcast has gotten pretty popular. He's a really intelligent guy listening to him speak, listening to his podcast that I've been sent. You know, I've sent this podcast years ago and tuned into it. I was like, wow, this guy's really intelligent, really well-spoken, but and there's a big, but, um, you really have to be careful taking information from people who are experts in areas that aren't their expertise. So Huberman is a professor of neuroscience studying ophthalmology, which is specifically eye health, 
and I'm confident that he's probably one of the best in the world at what he does in that field. However, I was sent podcast episodes of him talking about fish oil and him talking about artificial sweeteners and him talking about other topics related to nutrition. And then also I've seen a lot of the information that he's put out, like tweets and things like that, and and posts around cold plunging, and that has become very popular, and I've looked into that research as well. And what I have found is that he often will share individual studies and make bold conclusions from this one study that doesn't at all support the conclusions that he's making. For example, there was a study where they took two groups of people. One group of people went and did cold plunging for, I think it was once a week, and then they did like daily baths, but they were supposed to go to an outdoor location and go cold plunge, and they were supposed to exercise before for a little bit to warm up or exercise after for a little bit to warm up after they did the cold plunge. And they compared that to another group of people who did absolutely nothing. The group who got the cold plunge also was told that cold plunging, like they, they, they got a, I think it was like a four hour seminar on the benefits of cold plunging. So this group has been told that, you know, they're going to experience all these health benefits from cold plunging. They're told to go cold plunge once a week. They're told to take cold showers pretty much every day. And at the end of this study, the cold plunging group, um, the men, so it was a small group of people on average, they showed no differences when they took just the men, they showed that men had a tiny, tiny reduction in, in waist circumference um, among the cold plunging group. And Huberman shared that and said, you know, more evidence to show that cold plunging, you know, reduces body fat and improves like mental health outcomes because they did a survey and showed like these really almost insignificant benefits, quote unquote, among these individuals who were doing uh, the cold plunging. And the way that he described the study was a massive exaggeration from what the findings actually showed. You know, the findings actually showed that there might have been a minor reduction in uh, body fat percentage in a subgroup of people who were literally told to go exercise for 15 minutes a day and have they had to drive to a natural location or get to a natural location. They may not have been driving, but they they were they once a week went to an outdoor location like a lake to go cold plunge. That's a lot of effort. That's a lot of energy. If you're doing that and, and you lost one centimeter of waist circumference over a period of time, it's probably not the cold plunging. It's probably the going to the place and, and jumping in the water and moving around afterwards and all the effort that's involved with that. And Or it could also be the fact that these people thought that this cold plunging was supposed to have this massive major health benefit. So when they do it, they're expecting it to be the case, and maybe they're doing other healthy lifestyle habits. Regardless, this was a really bad study. This study does not show anything. Like it, the study should not be used to make conclusions at all. And and he posted this to millions of people who follow him and said, you know, further evidence that cold plunging has you know these benefits that weren't even really shown in the study. There's many examples of this. Artificial sweeteners. He he did. And, and I have these posts on my Instagram, but on artificial sweeteners, he claimed that artificial sweeteners caused insulin resistance in a group of people, and he cited a study, um, and then the study didn't show that at all, like didn't show it at all. It was a group of people who were, 
having sugar who ended up getting insulin resistance because they were uh, having sugar and he blamed it on artificial sweeteners. I broke that study down as well. I've broken about three or four of his posts down. Um, I don't want to get into too much detail. I don't want to bash this individual because again, I, I know he's a really smart person. I'm sure he's, um, you know, just trying to help educate people. But unfortunately, what happens sometimes is, you know, you start to say things, you're like, oh, cold plunging is good. And then people get excited and they share your stuff and they believe it. And, and maybe you want to just like continue to reinforce that message. And maybe that message isn't really deeply rooted in science. But if you get positive feedback from sharing that message, and it makes you want to do it more. And I, I'm not sure if that's the case. I don't know what the case is, but I'm confident that he knows how to read research and um, maybe he doesn't know how to interpret human research because there's a difference. Um, something that's really important uh, because I see this a lot. There's a lot of basic science researchers. There's a lot of researchers who, who there's one from specifically one from UCLA, one from Harvard who have become very popular and they're basic science researchers. They have only ever worked in labs with cell cultures and animals at, at the most. And so they're very smart in understanding how things work in a lab. They have no training in actual health promotion in the real world. And so what they often do is they will take findings in a lab and extrapolate them to a degree that isn't actually a way that we should be interpreting evidence, but because these people don't have that they don't have a background in public health, they don't have a background in health communication, they have a background in molecular biology and describing these mechanisms that occur within a cell, which is really interesting and sounds like it it really means a lot. But the reality is we have to look at things in the larger context. And in my opinion, and I've seen this multiple times, I've stitched some of these people's content on, on Instagram and, and explained how some of the way that they're interpreting the research is misleading. And, and this tends to happen with people who are like I said, these basic science researchers. So when you're hearing information from someone, it sounds really compelling. Um, think about their background. Have they ever worked with people? Do they have training in, in public health or nutrition? If they don't have these things, often they're going to be missing context in appropriately communicating the things that should actually matter and the things that you should be focusing on. Because like, let's say, for example, Andrew Huberman. He talks about the cold plunges a lot. Many, many, many people have been doing cold plunges because of the information that he has shared. But the reality is the health benefits, the established health benefits of cold plunging are non-existent. And people would benefit, most people would benefit by putting that effort into the number of the, the dozens of things that have established health benefits. And so this is where, you know, it's interesting to talk about what happens in our body when we get exposed to extreme cold and how that is kind of cool, but to then go and extrapolate that into saying, oh, well, this has all these health benefits when the data doesn't support that is quite another thing. And that's, that's what tends to happen 
in the in in his podcast and some of the some of the topics. Now, I'm I'm confident that there are many topics where he covers and he covers them in great depth and provides quality information, but of the ones that I'm familiar with that have been sent to me and of the episodes that I've listened to, I've heard a lot of information that wasn't correct, that wasn't based on research, that was correctly interpreted and communicated in a way that was accurate and contextual. So that's that's my main critique there. I mean, if you like to listen to him, I have no issue with it. And, you know, like I said, I think he's a pretty smart guy overall. I just... When it comes to topics that are outside of his expertise, I don't think that he is someone who you should be taking advice from. Number three, is a meal of only pasta better for fat loss than a meal where you're adding protein? This is an interesting question, and and I get where the question comes from. Because if you're just eating pasta, let's say you had a cup of pasta, it's 200 calories. You added some chicken, that's going to be 350 so clearly the pasta has less calories, so technically it should be better for fat loss, right? Well, there is some caveats to this. How is that food making you feel? How does it fill you up? What is it providing you? Because if you just eat that pasta, for most people, you're going to want to eat. Again, not too long after. But if you eat that pasta with six ounces of chicken, that is going to fill you up for a much longer period of time. So say, for example, you ate that pasta, maybe 90 minutes later, you're ready for food again, but maybe you had that chicken and it's three hours later before you're ready for food again. That is where protein is very helpful for fat loss and eating meals without protein often is going to lead to a higher consumption of energy because protein is very satiating. I talked about this a few episodes ago in our protein episode, so technically... One has fewer calories, but we have to understand the implications of eating that food. How is it going to affect our fullness level? And then the other side of it with protein is if your goal is fat loss, if you're not eating enough protein, a larger percentage of your weight loss is going to come from muscle. So say, for example, you ate just those that pasta versus pasta with, with protein, and you were eating a lower protein diet because you were trying to avoid protein because you were trying to reduce your calories and you didn't want to get those calories from protein for whatever reason, you are going to lose a higher percentage of muscle mass as a result of that because the protein is helping to maintain that muscle tissue. So no, pasta, although it is lower in calories, when we look at the impact of that meal on our overall daily dietary habits and in meeting our needs for for protein, adding in the protein is going to be a better option than just having pasta alone. Next, is it true that psyllium husk has a lot of dangerous metals? This is one of the reasons why it's really important to be selective where you get your information from. Um, Because psyllium husk has been shown to substantially reduce cholesterol, improve blood sugar control, improve constipation and diarrhea, and and there's many benefits of consuming psyllium husk. But if you come across some fear-mongering information of someone telling you that psyllium husk has metals in it, then you may avoid this perfectly healthy food that could offer you health benefits because you listened to someone who you shouldn't have been listening to. 
So this is one of the biggest reasons. I can't tell you how many. I had a conversation just yesterday if someone told me because I had mentioned they were asking me like, oh, how do I get up and work out in the morning? I was like, oh, I have coffee. And they were like, oh, I don't want to have coffee. It's bad for me. And I, my heart sunk. I'm like, I, I feel so bad when people just hear this misinformation. And this person had been told by whoever before that coffee was bad for them and they avoid it. And it's like, you're missing out on so much joy because someone lied to you. Coffee is associated with almost universally positive health outcomes. Of course, we can overdo it. Of course, caffeine is a stimulant and we can, we can definitely overdo it and it can disrupt sleep and it can overstress us if we're overdoing it. But including it in our diet and not including it because you think it's unhealthy is that's unhealthy. Like not including it is going to have a negative impact on your health because coffee consumption is associated with lower rates of heart disease, cancer, stroke, type 2 diabetes, and other health outcomes. And avoiding it because someone told you to is that they are harming your health. They're misleading information. It's having a negative impact on your health because it's preventing you from doing something that would benefit your health. Same thing here with psyllium husk. I've heard the same thing with flax seeds as well, where people say, oh, well, I heard flax seeds had phytoestrogens in them. And I had this comment on a post that I made on my Instagram where I cited hundreds of studies. There was over 100 citations in the in the randomized controlled trials that I cited in that specific post. And people still, after me putting all this evidence of showing, hey, look, these are all the reasons that uh, consuming flaxseed is going to benefit your health. People are still weary because of a fear-mongering piece of content that they came across. Because fear is just stronger than than you know potential benefits. So if I tell you, you know, flaxseed is good for you, eat more of it because it's going to benefit your cholesterol levels. But then someone else turns around and says, oh, it has you know metals and it's going to kill you. Most people are going to exercise the abundance of caution and go ahead and not consume it. So this is one of the many reasons why it's really important to be diligent about who you're getting your information from so you don't miss out on potentially healthy foods because someone made up some crazy claims about it. The last question is about soaking chia seeds. And the question is, should you soak chia seeds? And the answer is yes and no. Soaking chia seeds will increase the absorption of the nutrients in the chia seeds. Yes. So soaking versus not soaking, yes, soak. But Grinding your chia seeds is the optimal strategy. Just like flax seeds, we don't digest chia seeds very well. And there's evidence that when it's ground, we absorb a lot more nutrients from that seed. So same thing with flax seeds. If you're having flax seeds, make sure you're getting them ground. Same thing with chia seeds. Make sure you're getting them ground. You don't need to soak them. Get them ground. If you want to soak them after you grind them, perfectly fine. If you want to eat it that way, but make sure that you are getting your chia seeds ground or grinding them yourself if you want to absorb the nutrients from those chia seeds because chia seeds are very rich in omega-3 fatty acids and we cannot access some of those fatty acids because we can't break down the chia seeds and so grinding them down helps us access some of the nutrients that are contained in that seed a little bit better. Simple answer for that one. All right, so let me go ahead and give a quick recap. First question, is there such thing as an anti-inflammatory diet? Technically, no. I mean, you can put a lot of foods that have been shown to reduce inflammation together and call that an anti-inflammatory diet. I don't have a major problem with that, but technically, we can't necessarily say, hey, this diet is going to reduce inflammation 
in everyone. We don't necessarily know that, and it's dependent on other factors as well. Number two, what do I think of Huberman? I think he's a really smart guy. I just think that he goes outside of his area of expertise and gives advice often, and oftentimes that's not the most accurate advice. Number three, uh, is a meal with only pasta better than a meal with pasta and added protein for fat loss? And I described that, you know, a meal with only pasta is going to have less calories, but when you add the protein, it's going to be more satiating. And over the course of a day, adding in that protein to your meals and over the course of a you know, weeks and months, adding that protein to your meals is going to be better for body composition and fat loss than just having your meals be lower calorie, but lacking the protein. Number four, does celium have dangerous heavy metals? No, celium does not have dangerous heavy metals. I haven't been able to find any evidence that would support that statement. And number five, do we need to soak chia seeds? Um, not necessarily. I recommend getting them ground rather than soaking them. Soaking them is better than not soaking them because that helps break down some of the seed and we can absorb some of those nutrients a little bit better but grinding them is best. All right, so that's all I have for this episode. I hope this information was helpful. If you're enjoying the podcast and you haven't already, I would really appreciate it if you would head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to the podcast on and leave a review. And if you're enjoying the show, it would be really helpful if you could share it with others, you know, tell people in conversation, share it to your social media page, whatever the case may be, help to get the show out to more people. That's the only way we grow is through word of mouth. And I'm happy to say as I record this, halfway through the month and we've already surpassed the number of downloads from last month and i'm seeing like over 50 percent increase in downloads this month which is amazing i appreciate all of you i don't know where this came from but i'm guessing that it's you guys sharing the show so i really really appreciate that it's awesome to see the show climbing up in the rankings i shared to my social media recently that the podcast is now getting up to the top 50 in nutrition podcasts on apple pretty regularly and it's pretty exciting to see so again i appreciate you all for listening sharing showing support you know this podcast is something i really enjoy and i'm glad that some of you are finding value in it as well and enjoying it as well so hope you all have a great week and we'll talk soon